Right there. Right there, baby. Whoa, look, Ooh, look at, at that, that font. Look at that font. What's that magazine? Uh, this is Fantastic Films Magazine from February of 1980. Uh, hmm? There's a little article with Chuck in here where he talks about Soylent Green, where he's talking about like the role of women in the movie, and he says something like, um, it's a curious thing. I'll read it as Charlton Heston. It's a curious thing. Some feminists have criticized the film. How come women's rights, all the gains women have made seem to have been wiped away? Well, of course they would. If you have a society so crowded that the only thing you have to sell is whatever physical service you can provide where men are pulling rickshaws in the street or acting as bodyguards, then women are going to be selling their ass. <laughs> That's not a hot mic. No, that was, on, that was online. Yeah, that was, he was but a gentleman. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Brandon. How are you today? Oh, today I'm doing well. It's gray where I am. Gray here, too. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, Stephen, I know that you have a burgeoning new family, and it makes me wonder if you wonder about the future. Oh, every day. I wake up, I'm I'm, uh, petrified. Does it or does it not make you feel at least a little bit better to know that there are other people who have already thought about the future in the past, and now that future is the present. Mm. Yeah, no, frankly, no, because uh, people don't like to write about, you know, a brighter future. People write about a blighted future, because it, maybe it's more fun, maybe it's more, uh, maybe they know something we don't, these creative genius types, who knows? Yeah, usually people don't turn out well in the future. There's, there's one of a variety of apocalypses is, is that you can... Yeah suffer from some people turn out really well and then most people turn out really bad or there's something that's like pretty good and but secretly it's bad that's kind of the general formula Mm -hmm. yeah or uh it's great if you live above ground Mm -hmm. in your little male mini skirts but if you're one of the below the grounders yeah sucks for you and also weird hats everybody's got to take on the hat of the future no one's ever been the same since Kennedy killed the hat. Yep. Uh, today we're going to talk about a film that addresses the problem of 2022, that blighted year that we're living in right now. That film is the 1973 picture. I always like to call it a picture. Soylent Green, starring Charlton Heston and all 206 of his teeth. <laughs> what is the secret of Soylent Green? New York City, in the year 2022. Nothing runs anymore. Nothing works. But the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police! What they need most is Soylent Green. Yeah, and uh, the movie actually depicts the 1973 vision of 2022. So we're not only going to be talking about this picture, we're going to be talking about uh, the future, but not like the future future, sort of the future that people predicted in the past and the extent to which, you know, fiction itself in the past predicts or inspires events to come. Yeah. Is it uh, something where sci-fi is visionary, tells us what's going to happen, or some young, impressionable future billionaire says, I want to do that thing, and we all have to suffer the consequences. Stephen, to help us navigate this thing that we are 
hopelessly uh, unprepared for. We have a special guest today. Oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. His name is Dana Gould, comedian, writer, extraordinary person extraordinaire. Hopefully he's here. Dana, are you with us? Hi, Brandon. Hi, Steve. Hello. I think that's my calling card. I'm an, ex- I'm an extraordinary person extraordinaire. There you go. And if I was a lawyer, I would be an extraordinary person extraordinaire Esquire. Hi. Um, hi, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me on today. Um, Dana, you're a comedian. You're a writer. You have worked on some iconic stuff. And you have a deep and abiding fascination with all things old school cinema. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about your love of the old timey movies. Uh, yeah, I got into it, you know, they they didn't start off as old timey. They just started out as movies. Then I became (laughs) old timey and the movies went along with it. Um, you know, in Massachusetts where I grew up on Saturday afternoons, we had creature double feature and that was always there. Two horror movies back to back every Saturday afternoon. So like I had in the midst of the chaos, there were things that were dependable. Horror movies and science fiction movies. So I gravitated <laughs> towards them. They were there for me. And um, for whatever reason, I became obsessed with the Planet of the Apes series when I was a kid. It was uh, as, as important to me. As I said to Charlton Heston, when I met him, Planet of the Apes was as important to me as baseball is to most kids. Hmm. What did Charlton say? To That's that? wonderful. He, <laughs> he could he could not have been nicer. Um, he could not have been more lovely. And uh, and uh, so yeah, I got into Soylent Green and the Omega Man just because Charlton Heston was in it. So, uh, and then as I got old, you know, I got older, I just never lost my love of this stuff. You know, I have, I have a normal life. I have a family. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, were you to meet me on the street, you wouldn't know this. And were you to walk into my house, you wouldn't really pick up on it. I've been in, I've been in homes from like, oh, you really like the Wolfman. (laughs) um well we wanted to specifically pick your brain about uh what you think about soylent green and what it meant to you is that fiction still fiction (laughs) 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 is maybe a better way to put it dana tell us what the hell was going on with soylent green okay well it depends on how far back you want to go but let's say let me start in the year 1966. All right. Two things happen. Uh, A writer named Harry Harrison, and clearly his parents weren't writers, or they'd have given him a better name. Uh, He writes a novel called Make Room, Make Room, which is a uh, speculative fiction story about a world blighted by overpopulation. And, you know, they take that setting and then they put a, a murder mystery plot into that setting uh, to, to tell the story. It's a, it's, a, it's a great novel. Now, at the same time, in 1966, 20th Century Fox is, is on the skids. They've lost a ton of money earlier in the decade with uh, the movie Cleopatra, which uh, was so financially devastating to the studio, 
even though it made money, it cost so much money. They had to sell their back lot to real estate developers to keep the lights on. And hmm. that is now the Century City shopping mall. Huh. Uh, that was all 20th Century Fox. And uh, Daryl Zanuck, who uh, founded the studio, then left the studio, then came back uh, in the wake of Cleopatra is uh, the president. And he installs uh, as the executive vice president in charge of production, his son, Richard. And uh, Richard Zanuck is a very competent executive. And he is pitched, among other things, uh, the novel Planet of the Apes by this guy named Arthur P. Jacobs. And over a long period of uh, development, they make Planet of the Apes. And Planet of the Apes is a huge hit, not only for 20th Century Fox, but for its star, Charlton Heston, who had been looking for a hit. He was a big star in the 50s and in the 60s. He was working a lot, but he, he didn't have a lot of hits. Uh, he needed, they both needed a hit and they both got one. And uh, Heston realized that the science fiction vein worked really well for him. Uh, and he made a bunch of science fiction movies in the early 70s. He was in the sequel to Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, although he wasn't, uh, he did it basically as a favor. He did not like the script. He did it as a favor to Dick Zanuck. And he made, uh, the following year, he made uh, The Omega Man, which was based on the novel I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. And I'm always amazed by, it's such a small pool of people that have had this influence on our culture. Uh, the screenplay for Planet of the Apes was written by Rod Serling. He became famous uh, because of The Twilight Zone, where he hired a young writer named Richard Matheson as a staff writer. You know, it's mm -hmm. like all of these people, they all know each other. They all, they all went to each other's house. Soylent Green doesn't have the cultural appeal of the Omega Man, but certainly the concept of Soylent Green has permeated our culture. And the concept of the big secret at the end of Soylent Green uh, has certainly uh, is is a is a pop cultural punchline, which, by the way, is sort of become Charlton Heston's great legacy. Is you always know Heston as the guy who yells the big reveal at mm -hmm. the end of the movie. Yes, <laughs> you blew it up. You made it out of people. It was Jesus Christ the whole time. <laughs> it's really I mean, true. That's... At the end of every movie, he just, if he was in King Kong, the last scene would just be him going, the gorilla's dead. Like, whatever. <laughs> They're making our food out of people. Next thing, they'll be breeding us like cattle for food. You gotta tell them. You gotta tell them. Promise, Tiger. I promise. I'll tell the exchange. You tell everybody. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them. Silent Green is people! We've got to stop them somehow! I, I actually saw this for the first time recently, and when I was watching it, of course I knew in, in the back of my head the end of the movie because of everything we just said. But so I was thinking though, it does seem pretty obvious that that's what the secret is. So like when the movie came out, was it as big of a reveal as, you know, it was meant to be? Or did people kind of see it coming? My my guess is it was a big surprise. I, I you know I was only uh, I I saw it years later on television, but 
I do know that Charlton Essen says in his book, The Actor's Life, about that last shot. The shot didn't really come off. It was no, uh, we were. It was the end of the day, and we were rushed, and the last shot didn't really play. <laughs> and he's very frank about. I mean, he. You want to not like him because yeah. of his. If you know of his political stances, but you don't have to go down that deep. He's great. He's he's a man from another time, and he's incredibly humble and generous and self-effacing in his appraisal of his work. I I, I will say that having read his book and and having met him uh, you know he was a pretty pretty groovy dude yeah it does make me wonder how much he know he was aware that his shtick which was this big style of acting um you know which people would sort of laugh at it it made me wonder like does he know that he's doing this and this is his style and he's just sort of leaning into it rather than being like i should dial this back you wouldn't want to put someone like that in anything but these bigger roles and that kind of it, it's sort of what happens in Soylent Green I guess because it's more of this sort of noir type detective but he's yeah. still sort of he's playing that sort of archetype but then he's it, it, it I don't know it maybe because it sort of mismatched has to do with the enduring popularity of the film yes and I agree with you I mean he it's it's a very, to use another science fiction analogy, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a lot like Blade Runner and it's a film noir detective story set in a dystopian future. And the film noir detective story is there as a vehicle to, to create this world. And, and the story is really the world. It's, and the, the plot just moves you through it. And, uh, you know, uh, same with 2001. You know, it's not... They didn't really set out to remake the Odyssey. They wanted to remake what the future would be like, and they used the Odyssey to tell that story. Um, and he's actually pretty vulnerable in Soylent Green. I, you know, he's 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 a lot dialed. He's more dialed back than he is in Apes or the Omega Man. He's uh, uh, even for his uh, level of daring do and bravado yeah. all all the scenes with edward g robinson uh, uh play great uh, he's very uh and you can see him he has such uh love for that character and that was real uh in life that he actually becomes smaller in those scenes yeah. he, you can see him pulling into himself Oh, yeah, when they're eating the stew, like that, the dinner scene is just like is just downright tender in the midst yeah. of this whole dystopian future. Which also I noticed they they put a green filter over like every exterior shot. It looks sickly. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I think is so kind of compelling about looking at old sci-fi, because like it's you know novels of the time or. Uh, other film or music, everything reflects kind of the anxieties of that era and the right. hopes and everything. But sci-fi just does it real loud. Yeah, and especially so case, late '60s, early '70s sci-fi, which was yeah. And it's like we're gonna have too many people. The ozone layer they just had found out about yesterday. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that thing's going away. So they're worried about too many people, not enough food environmental degradation and apparently humidity was something that was referenced <laughs> as serious and it's because they were also sweaty i was like i guess yeah. it's hot but apparently it really was the humidity was an effect that they wanted to make sure that the audience apprehended and safari safari clothing was huge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
yeah, safari-themed clothing yep. and neckerchiefs and <laughs> turtlenecks. That's my favorite. My favorite thing about early 70s science fiction is thousands of years in the future, all men will have large sideburns and will wear turtlenecks. Yeah, it's amazing. In this case, Charlton Heston's outfit that he puts on they show the whole him getting ready to go out and it's like very tight t-shirt tiny little sort of sexy gun holster Mm -hmm. shoulder holster uh the neckerchief and the little hat and it kind of looks like heston has a young son who runs like uh a train for tots and he's borrowed his kids (laughs) little child conductor clothes and he had to wear them out that day it's sort of like business casual too. Like the uniform, the notion of a uniform has devolved by 2022 in this right. case. And everybody just has to sort of dress like they're ready to investigate crimes, but they're not going to make <laughs> a big now deal. Now dress out like of you're going to investigate a crime today. <laughs> and whatever that means to you. So for him, it meant the neckerchief and the little train hat. So they were casting their minds forward as far as. We think this is what's going to happen when there's no food. So everybody was a little bit dirty. You know, the poor are everywhere. And one of the actually kind of cool effects that was overdone, but to a degree I appreciate it, was the thing is just extras. Speaking of like Cleopatra, it was like that level of hundreds and hundreds of people on these back lots. Mm -hmm. And they really just stacked them up. And Heston moved through the world by like leapfrogging over bodies on stairs mm-hmm. and getting yelled at every third person he stepped on just to remind us like this is what it looks like when you got too many folks in the world right and everybody's dirty and sweaty and then you get into the high rises where the elites live and everything is the 70s version of lux you right. know there's there's food there there's steaks there's a whole weird thing with the the strawberry jam that he steals the spoon from <laughs> and gives it to Edward G. Robinson. Doesn't he who, doesn't he have a very like se- almost sexual these are real strawberries. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could tell when he was kissing Cheryl that he was really kissing strawberries (laughs) that's the other thing i think the future from like the early 70s the future just only continued to get sexier from the moment in the 70s until like by the time you get to 2022 everything's sexy yeah yeah and also a fascination with at that time the idea of overpopulation like that must have really been something they were hooked on i watched this on hbo max hbo max will recommend other movies so here's soylent green The description is, a police officer in the year 2022 uncovers the deadly secret behind a mysterious synthetic food. And then Logan's Run's description. A police officer in the future uncovers the deadly secret behind a society that worships youth. (laughs) A lot of cops, a lot of deadly secrets. And society is screwed up in one of a variety of ways. Both of which, I believe, involve... Here's a creative way to get rid of the surplus people. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and so let's. I mean, let's talk about some of the predictions of the film itself and what sort of has come true. Because to a certain extent, some of it wasn't that far off. For one, there's a, a green haze is heavy in the sky in the atmosphere throughout the entire movie. Anytime you step outside, and uh, that's obviously indicative of the severe pollution crisis that the movie predicted in 1973. Well, just the other week, a report came out that said one in six people are killed by pollution worldwide. And that beats out the annual global death tolls for war, malaria, HIV, tuberculosis, 
or drugs or alcohol. So this idea of lethal pollution is in fact quite true. We always see these consequences in films and we watch things with all the barriers and borders of the film's narrative around it, right? So it seems really upfront. Yet, depending on where you live, you wouldn't feel the effects of that at all. Like where we are right now, you wouldn't walk out of the house and worry that every sixth person was going to die from breathing the air. But it is statistically true at a global level. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that these things happen slowly. I moved to Los Angeles in 1989. If I went from there to today, I would think I was living in a dystopian nightmare. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's everybody's in a mask. Uh, there's a tent encampment under every overpass. These things don't happen overnight. It's the frog in the saucepan. You get used to it enough that you don't realize the water's boiling. That's a thing that you notice right out of the gate in the credits, which were kind of amazing credits for oh, yeah. the movie is people were wearing masks and then there's some other images of the kind of acceleration of overpopulation and pollution. Mm-hmm. Then the mask comes back. And by the like the third time I was like, oh wait, they have masks. Because I was just like, well of course they have masks. It's <laughs> it's the modern age. Yeah. But then I was like, wait, no, why do they have masks? That we're just so used to seeing that now that um that it didn't strike me at first. Yeah, have super- any of you been to Shanghai? Oh no. Mm-hmm. But I've heard about the pollution there. Yeah, no, it was just like, oh, it's Blade Runner. We were living in Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. Just neon peeking through pollution. Yeah. I I wonder also in the past really two years between, especially here in California, with the wildfires and then the pandemic sort of compounding that those dystopian elements. Maybe one of the reasons why it felt so jarring is because while these things do happen gradually, in this case, it was like over the course of a few months, or even in some cases a few days, suddenly everything got different. Suddenly everywhere has masks. Somewhere, suddenly mm-hmm. there's like bread lines at the grocery store. And I think that that's what also freaked everybody out is because this sort of long-term dystopic view of the future, which we all like to be entertained by, suddenly became this near-term reality. And that just like flipped everyone's lid. Yeah, the only thing missing from Soylent Green is seeing a small group of people with a very loud megaphone on TV all day going, actually, it's not crowded at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Politics was mostly absent and mass media was mostly absent. Well, well, no, you had that swinging cat who was like a senator who bribes the chief to try to get his underling, Charlton Heston, to... I'm just going to say Charlton Heston because, be real, he's playing himself regardless of the name of his character in the film. But he's basically trying to bribe him and encourage him to stop investigating him. So, like, right. yeah. but yeah, he walked in. I mean, that guy was, he was swinging. And then they had the, the secret kind of noir sort of setting where they're supposed to be in this clandestine area, like a forest or a park. But instead, they're in, like, the army tent that, that is now Central Park. Right, right, right. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. with the last five trees yeah. in the city. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of movies like that at that time. Another one is Silent Running. The earth has been completely deforested, and the surviving forests are in a floating spaceship in a series of platforms. And uh, this one man is in charge of all this saving the forests. All very yeah. dire. As a sidebar, has there been a movie made? about 
how great the future is. With yes. no strings attached. It's just well, like Star the- Trek is that's oh, the secret okay. appeal of Star Trek is that we get our crap together. Oh. And that was the appeal of it. That was it was actually optimistic. No money. That is so no cool. poverty. Yeah, that is so cool. Oh, I never thought. But mm-hmm. so but but just so one. But everything else is just like no, the future just be here now because everything ahead of you eventually will suck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think you're all, right. It's all supposed to be consequential, right? I mean, that's what it's you know. Yeah. That's why you can look at sci-fi or fantasy, yeah, more sci-fi, I guess, from that era and understand what they were worried about in that era. You know, I, I don't know if any of you watch this series Picard, which is uh, the spinoff of Star Trek The Next Generation, but in the current season, they have to, it's old tried and true Star Trek uh, format, they have to go back to 2024 to fix something that breaks in the future. <laughs> and this one person that, you know, is there looks around and it was like this, they're in LA in a tent encampment in LA that's, you know, if anything, looks a little nicer than the real ones. And this person just says, you know, this that has been there for a while. He's like, there's so much hate in this world. Da, 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 da. And and they actually have a character say it's it's heartbreaking because you hope he's right. But he says, like, it, it humanity did figure itself out. It did correct itself. But but the 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 inference being like, yeah, what we're doing here, what we're doing right now is it looks like we're heading for the toilet. Yeah, there needs to be a fork for us to get to yeah. the flying spaceships yeah. and um, doing all this cool stuff. So I, I, I would like to go back again to look a little bit more deeply into the predictive nature of soil and green. Obviously, food shortages right at the very forefront of the film, basically kind of what the film is all about, if you think about it. And of course, that is also true today in 2022, uh, according to a recent um, report from the UN. Uh, Nearly one in three people around the world, that means 2.37 billion people, did not have access to adequate food in 2020. And that's an increase of almost 320 million people in just one year. And if I were to continue to quote this report, we would all just kind of walk away from this little conversation because it's too depressing. But the only thing we need to know is that, yes, the food crisis is also a big deal. And certainly the front page news for the first time in presumably American history is baby formula or the lack thereof. Mm-hmm, and the, right. fact, the confluence of recalls and supply chain issues and some degree of politicking have suddenly made this supply thing uh, a huge political cudgel that one side is using against the other and legitimately raising these issues that you know, nursing women are having to deal with. Um, and that kind of came out of nowhere, it seemed like. It seemed like we weren't worrying about that. And then all of a sudden, one day, that was the front page news, even though there was plenty of evidence that this was going to become problematic. Yeah. It just didn't quite, it wasn't quite scheduled. But that seems so weirdly dystopian in kind of a different way. You know, if you were to tell somebody in the 70s, and one day we're going to run out of baby formula. Yeah. They'd be like, yeah, but like Soylent Green made it seem a lot worse, you know. So um, so there is that that sense in which the predictive power of these stories comes true, but in a much stranger way, you know, in a way that isn't quite there. It's sort of adjacent to there. 
and is somehow both more and less dramatic. If only um, it was formula for unborn babies, because they they yeah. have su- such a fierce political base. It's because the minute the babies are born, then they just become poor people. And it's a problem. It's it's really You've never seen a baby work, so it's it the is unborn. true. Yeah. The unborn get all the political clout. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, not to go too far down the rabbit hole with the baby formula, it, it should be noted that while there's supply chain issues and, and all of these other reasons why there's a shortage of baby formula right now, it also is squarely the result of the monopoly on baby formula providers, right? Like there's like three of them, I think uh, over 80% of all of the formula is produced by these three or four people. And, you know, just so people know, those three providers give you 27 different brands. So you have the illusion of choice, (laughs) Like, like so many other things in your life. You have the illusion of choice. And to bring that back around in a kind of weird way, the idea of a drink that provides all of your needs was captured by a startup a few years ago when these tech folks that didn't want to, so the legend goes, leave their computers, invented Soylent. Yeah. A meal replacement that, you know, tasted like nutritious chalk, but a liquid form of it. Yeah. Apparently, that company sort of denied the connection to the movie Soylent Green, which is insane. World's worst lie. Come on. <laughs> because, they, because they actually were like, no, actually, we based it on the portmanteau of soy and lentils, which can be found in the book. The other big theme of the movie, and presumably the book, was answering the question of what do you do with all these people? And so they had invented and really uh, professionalized the euthanasia process. So we see Edward G. Robinson's character, Saul Roth, who has found out that Soylent Green is made of people, spoiler alert, he can't handle that knowledge. And also he's crushed by the weight of nostalgia. You get the impression that he Mm -hmm. knew the world as it was Mm -hmm. before it all went to shit. So... This was like the last straw for him. He's not going to live in a world where the main food supplies people. So he goes to this place. They take him into a nice room. They tuck him into this little bed. All I remember from that scene is that they play the music from the Pure Gint Suite and the walls look like the ceiling at Cantor's Deli. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And it goes on and it goes on. And as he's falling into his final sleep, which once you know that this was the last scene he was ever going to do after a career of 101 movies. Yeah, that's amazing. And he was going to die right after this. It kind of does take on a resonance. Uh, Edward G. Robinson's death scene was the last scene he ever acted in, and he knew it in the moment. He had uh, bladder cancer and was dying from it. Died, I believe, 12 weeks after the show wrapped. 12 days. 12 days. Was that it? Did you do it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So sort of his life is flashing before his eyes. Charlton Heston's character is looking at it. He doesn't remember that world, so he's just focused on his friend. The whole thing to me seemed very Disney. I could really, in that moment while I was watching it, see in like 25 years, like, well, why wouldn't Disney just have a corner of the Magic Kingdom that's like a death resort for all the leftover baby boomers or whatever because it'd be like this like oh it's going to be some kind of great thing i mean it'd be more like marvel characters flashing across the screen Mm. but Mm -hmm. you could see that sort of thing happen and you know you're seeing it now like there was a story that came out months ago about this euthanasia pod that was 
created by an Australian right-to-die advocate that's called Sarco from Exit International is the name of the company. What a name. What a name for a company involved in that industry. Oh, no, it's perfect. So Sarco looks like an escape pod from life. The way it works is it you get in and it slowly drains the oxygen and you fall into a peaceful slumber. A lot of controversy at the idea when they premiered this thing at like an art show that they were sort of trying to fancy up or make consumer friendly the self-annihilation process. But then other people were like, no, we need to be a sophisticated society and and allow this. And, you know, this conversation is going on in the United States. There are 10 states and in Washington, D.C., allow some version of medically assisted right to die. So we're starting to see that actually become a thing that I think at the time was considered more taboo. Now is considered like, well, yeah, you know, it's not it's not an insane thing to consider if you're terminally ill or if you're carrying the weight of a, a terrible, terrible secret yeah. about I mean, the in, nature of the food supply, in, I guess. In Soylent, it's like the world has become terminally ill. You get to choose to check out because the world is no longer a tenable uh, or a comfortable place to live at large. So the difference there being a euthanasia now is focused on, you know, a, a terrible situation, essentially internally or medically. But the problem in the future with assisted dying is that the world just sucks so much that dying becomes this kind of more palatable option, which is kind of like, you know, the existentialist thing where it's like, hey, there's always choice because really at the end of the day, you can always kill yourself. Fun. Fun. So it really does seem that Soylent Green ended up predicting a lot of things about the future. We're seeing uh, clear evidence that some of what it prognosticated would actually come to be. So that gets us back to the question that we asked at the beginning of the episode, which is what what is fiction doing when it adds things to story that then become true? Is, Is fiction seeing into the future or is it giving people who consume that fiction inspiration to build a future based on what they consume steven did you know as you sit here you sit in the presence of someone who has written not only for but of the simpsons (laughs) i don't know what that means (laughs) for and I don't know what that means but dana's written for the simpsons dana yes i have tell us what that means uh, uh, yeah, no, well, you go to work at Fox and they pay you money to write The Simpsons. <laughs> yeah, I was there for, uh, seven, eight years and, uh. What seasons? Um, 13 to 20. Nice. 21. And, uh, you know, still, I, you know, it's like the mafia. You never really leave. I've talked to them the other day. Um. Well, and that's a good example, too, of like you were saying, there was like three writers back in the day who were doing all of sci-fi in the 60s and 70s. A lot of, lot of talent came through the Simpsons writing room. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and the, in terms of the Simpsons' ability to predict, we certainly never, in the time that I was there, thought, well, this will come true. I mean, if anything, <laughs> if anything... Uh, it's not that the Simpsons predicted the future. It's that society has lowered itself to the level of the Simpsons. Yeah. Well, that's that idea that satire ends up becoming predictive, too, in that way. What's True. the worst thing that can happen? And then reality winds around to meeting it there. Like, wouldn't it be funny if Donald Trump became president? Yep. Yeah. And- said a lot of comedians and 
you know, that became a riff in The Simpsons. Then it happens, and we're like, what? How? So, you know, are we sensing something in the ether, or is it just that the universe itself has a weird sense of humor and is delivering on all of our fears? And- I think it's that, and, you know, it's just the nature of 300 episodes. Yeah. You're going you're gonna to hit occasionally anybody who's ever gambled at the roulette. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you play 500 times, eventually you're going to hit a couple. Totally. People have claimed that The Simpsons have predicted everything from Three-Eyed Fish to the censorship of Michelangelo's David, and then to famously, as Brandon brought up, the election of Donald Trump as president. That one is weird because the first big clip of Donald Trump, sort of his coming out party as a presidential candidate, he was descending an escalator. And in the Simpsons version, he was doing like the same thing. And this whole scene looked really similar. um, A mathematician and assistant math professor at the University of Albany named Matt Zaremski estimates that the show is made about 120,000 jokes in a 29 season run based on an average of 8.54 jokes per minute from the first 12 seasons. So he took that and then made a run rate to come at this estimate. And it comes down to roughly a 1.6% success rate. Yeah, see, it's it's not. Yeah, that's about right. That's not so great anymore, Dana. It's oh, not. man. I'm ashamed. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of the escalator, I think like I'm just I wasn't in the room when that was written, but I'm thinking, like, all right, we're going to do something with Donald Trump. Well, what do you think about when you think of Donald Trump? Well, he's kind of a lard ass. He's so, yeah. you know, an escalator is just a great way of like he's moving, but not really. Like, I can see how that would happen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, I, and I do think, like you say, there are such there are such smart people writing for that show, particularly and, you know, kind of in comedy in general with a cartoon you have the unique advantage of not being constrained by reality. Like, well, we right. can, we don't have to worry about like going to find an elevator set. We just draw an elevator. Right. So you, re- you really can kind of spin it out, kind of like actually sci-fi, where it's like we can just make it a world in which there are nine billion people. You know, it can be this kind of hyperbolic version of reality. And The Simpsons does that. And then you have very smart people who are like, we have to sort of get as far ahead of the expected as possible. There's that kind of A to C in terms of what's the joke going to be or A to Q or whatever it is. Um, And yeah, and then every now and again, that A to Q is going to line up with something that that ends up happening. Yeah. Or the more horrible thing is whether, you know, Trump, who I'm sure is an avid Simpsons fan, was like, you know what, I should, I should make a run for president. I would like to do that escalator thing. Yeah, I mean, the big futuristic conceit of Dick Tracy was an Apple Watch. Yeah, yep. totally. <laughs> no matter what, we were going to end up with TVs on our freaking in our hands, yeah. right? Like that's always been like the number one go-to. Hey, we need to indicate that this scene is from the future. We have somebody talking to somebody on a TV. And then obviously that's like how we all make a living now. The flying car, the flying cars always worries me because think of how bad people are driving on roads. Mm-hmm. Now they'll be driving in the air. Well, we talked about that, you and I, because I became obsessed with the idea of flying cars and the multi, multi, multi million dollar industry that's now supporting that worldwide. And all of the flying car companies continue to offer the same selling point. Hey, traffic is bad. This will solve the problem. Well, no, it's not going to. You're going to have some people with money who can fly around. 
now you've just added traffic to the sky, but because of the economics of how roads work, you're going to have what's called induced demand. People get off the roads for a little while. More people are going to be like, hey, the highways have freed up. Let's get on the highways and right. just have them mm. clogged again. Happens when you expand highway lanes, and it'll happen when you put flying cars in the sky. But there's still that idea that once we do that, once we put flying cars up there, we've arrived at the future. Not the... Not the shitty Blade Runner future, but the cool... The Jetsons. The Jetsons, future. Jetsons Star <laughs> yeah. Trek, happy future. I, I keep thinking about this idea of how, like, fiction and whenever you put a lot of smart people together writing specifically comedy, um, how that fiction ends up making weird what appear to be predictions, right? And com comedy specifically because in order to for something to be funny, a lot of elements need to be at play in the mechanics of that joke, which draw upon people's familiarity with the zeitgeist of the current time, right? So right. There, there's it's embedded and woven into a joke specifically are all these other threads from the world in which the joke is told, right? So as a result of all of those elements of society that you're pulling from, it's almost like inadvertently you predict the future because you're compounding and analyzing all those elements that maybe wouldn't have been like synthesized in that way. Right. It, I mean, it could, it could be. I also think that reality no, has no bottom. <laughs> you know, that what's the most ridiculous thing you can think of? Donald Trump would be president. Okay, guess what's going to happen? Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I, I can only say that nobody set out to predict anything. Yeah, I guess that again gets us back to this thing we keep talking about about you know what if fiction, especially when written and seen through a cynical lens, if those are the stories being told, and you couple that with this idea that reality has no bottom, it does seem that you can very reasonably predict what could happen just by paying very close attention to the sort of absurdity of the world around you. Presently. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not even, you could say, is it science fiction? Is it predicted fiction? Or is it just extrapolated fiction? Like, well, obviously, you know, at some point, Drew Barrymore is going to be the vice president. It's, it's <laughs> there's no way around it. I'm sure there are shows where Oprah was president or cartoons where Oprah was president. It's um, science fiction used to be, and I guess still it's called speculative fiction sometimes. But when you think about speculative fiction as a guess at how things could be, that suddenly encompasses a lot more stuff, including probably The Simpsons in this reading. Like, well, the show was about trying to figure out kind of how people are now and what that all means. In that respect, speculative fiction kind of makes a lot of sense. I guess to go back to a point we sort of glossed over. Uh, when you were talking about what is going on in the writer's room of The Simpsons, and you're saying nobody's setting out to predict the future, I know that it's, it's, if I ask, what are you setting out to do? It's to write funny shit. But like, in that room, what are you, what are you setting out to do? Like, like what is the process of, of coming to a story um, in such a way that it produces that unique sort of magic that the simpsons is well you're just trying to tell you're trying to tell a story that we haven't already told that has some basis of relevance or uh commonality to regular people so that they hook into the story and then 
once you've established that story, to make it as funny as possible. Uh, and there are many tricks that we do. Uh, they did when I was there uh, to do that. You know, one of them is that a style of a Simpsons story is that if you look at the show as a three-act structure, although I think now it's four because of a different commercial grid, but when the show is three acts, your first act had nothing to do with the story you were telling. The first act was a sketch. They go to a book fair. They go to the opening of a mall. Lisa's in a swim tournament. Then at the very end of the first act, you start what becomes your real story. Lisa has a crush on a boy. Uh, you tell the first act, you set up the story. So your first act has nothing to do with the story. The first act, you set up the story. And then in the second act, the goal was twist the story as hard as you can without breaking it. How hard can we turn this wheel without flipping the car? That was always the goal. By doing that, you are pushing yourself. And I think that when you push yourself out of uh, predictable thought patterns, you're going to get s stuff that other shows don't normally say, which allows you to inadvertently say Donald Trump will be president. Hmm. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think we ever set out. It was a weird uh, bonus from the way we, you know, the way we write the show. Did that make a lick of sense? It made a lot of sense. So a lot of talk about whether texts are or are not predicting things that are happening, whether we mere mortals are making good guesses or good informed guesses and is accidentally stumbling on, you know, travesties of history, like who ends up being president. We should talk a little bit about the idea that there are now kind of for the first time in history, I think, people who have the power to take these visions that they enjoyed as children and to begin to realize them in ways that are absolutely civilization altering. So Elon Musk, inspired by Isaac Asimov's foundation, thought, I think we should really start putting people on colonies I think we should really start putting people in space so that the human race can survive if there's a catastrophe. Jeff Bezos really liked Star Trek, wanted to do rockets, and kind of the same thing. Uh, Zuckerberg loved Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash novel, uh, which invented the idea. Well, it didn't invent it. Which named the metaverse, and Zuck ran with that, <laughs> and is now essentially building that thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Is that a good idea? Is that a scary idea? Is it something that we should be well, inspired by, that art can inspire people to realize these visions? Or should we all hide under our beds until a new multiverse emerges? Well, I'm of the opinion that that has always been the way it is. I mean, that you know, the super wealthy have always, you know, one guy has an idea and they're rich enough to make it work. You know, they're, they're rich enough to force their will uh, in terms of the, whether it's the, you know, the, the printing press or, you know, it's like eventually one person, whether or not they're rich or not, like one person has an idea and they find a way to make it happen and push it through. Uh, 
And in our case, you happen to be citing people that are very wealthy and can have people do it for them instead of doing it on their own. Uh, I thought it was interesting you said, you know, like, uh, Elon Musk thought based on Isaac Asimov's foundation trilogy that mankind should be in space so that it could survive in the case of a calamity. And Jeff Bezos thought, you know, I should be in space. Yeah. <laughs> Just me. Yeah. You know, yeah, go to space? I, me. Just me. And, you know, me I, and my friends. It's so true because, and also, what comes to mind is, uh, are the ships that sailed the seas and, and discovered new worlds, right? <clears throat> so, the la- we've done the whole, we've done the Earth. So, now the next generation of that is going to Mars, looking in at the moon, all of that. Back then, the people who sailed those ships were kings and queens and extremely wealthy people. So today's, the modern day king and queen is the, you know, top tier billionaire. They they exist outside and above the law. I mean, the fact that Elon Musk has SpaceX, like what if somebody in the 70s told you that there would be a private company that right. NASA was, was, that was helping NASA? Like you right. would never, that's that's totally turning the whole idea on its head. And it, well, I mean, that was happening then too. It was just Lockheed. Oh yeah. And Boeing yeah. and you know. Werner, Werner von Braun. <laughs> but was it Lockheed like going? It wasn't like Lockheed. NASA was like, who's going to get to the moon first? Like those Lockheed guys or us? They just had one contract and it was like, we're going to give it to these guys. Ah, hey. Right. Yeah, so it's not really that different. The difference now is that that outfit, I believe it's called the United Launch Alliance, had competition. Musk came in and said, I can do this cheaper. And so it became like, oh, this is, this is what it looks like when the market has found its way into space exploration. Before, it seemed like it was this sort of monocultural government thing because there was only one company that really could build that stuff. And so there wasn't a conversation about, like, can we do this cheaper? It was more like, we don't want to watch people walk on the moon anymore. What else is on? And then it sort of all went away. It's really true. Yeah. <laughs> it's really true. Around 1972, we went, all right, kind of, we kind of seen it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I had yeah. never put that together, that this partnership between public and private entities in the exploration of space has always been so intertwined. And you're totally right. Same thing with, like, military and public and private partnerships right. there, too. No, that's 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 right. really interesting. So what do you think, though, Dana? Do you think that fiction and the power of story is either to blame or to be congratulated for causing these people with gobs and gobs of money uh, to realize those retro visions of the future? Oh, I think it's both. You know, the thing that you always have to factor in is that, you know, one, people are not perfect. And two, you know, most normal, rational people don't become billionaires from nothing. So once they're billionaires, you have to deal with the usually clinically narcissistic psychological defect that propelled them to their point anyway. You know, it's like, why does Jeff Bezos think he belongs in space? Because Jeff Bezos didn't find that money in a tree trunk, (laughs) you know? He ate pe- through people's faces. But it, yeah. it's, what I mean is, like, it's a person with that kind of drive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, totally. it, is, it is a person that will self-propel themselves to be a billionaire. It's like, yeah. Or the, anybody who runs for president. Mm. 
has a narcissistic personality. Fo- you know who should be in charge of the world? This guy. Like, who, <laughs> who thinks that? <laughs> yeah, you know. So we got bizarre. these. We got these billionaires who have the means and the psychological profile to take stories that they were inspired by when they were children to see those things through to reality. So in this case, and in some cases, it does appear true that it is the fiction plus certain personality types that make those stories that the egotistical people once read, it causes them to make them a reality, especially if you sprinkle in a couple billion dollars. Yeah, it's a real Oedipus thing. You know, it's like we're trying to not get him to screw his mom, but every road leads to screwing his mom. Right. Every time. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. Dana, tell us where people can find you, what you're up to, and what kind of stuff you like. I don't know. Well, you can always find me in your heart. And I'm there waiting to be discovered you don't have to go looking for me uh no and outside of that i'm on all platforms as dana gould on instagram and twitter and and facebook and uh uh right now uh in addition to i have my own little podcast that comes out once a month called the dana gould hour and i have uh a bulletin newsletter that comes out twice a week at danagould.bulletin.com, which is just kind of like this kind of obscure facts about cult movies and weird movies. Uh, And then uh, I have a series on YouTube that people can enjoy, somewhat related to this conversation, called uh, Hanging with Dr. Z. And uh, I will show that if you're a fan of talk shows, this show proves that, yes, a monkey can do it. It's as true as it is honest. It's true. <laughs> it's as deep as it is shallow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's enough. Been... That's enough, right? That's enough. That's plenty. That's yeah. Good Lord. And I'm on the I'm on the road telling my joke shows, doing that, and I'm 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 very busy. Inspiring the next generation of narcissistic, megalomaniacal billionaires. Well, thank you for coming, Dana. We appreciate you explaining 2022 from the perspective of 1973 and Charlton Heston, American great guy. Mm -hmm. My my favorite thing, yesterday's version of tomorrow. Yeah. Yes. Or, Or clumsy aliens that speak bad screenwriter talk. We have been waiting here for over four of your Earth hours. <laughs> you, you'd never say that. Uh, well, this has been Journos. I am Brandon R. Reynolds. I'm Stephen Jackson. I'm Dana Gould, a guest. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care, everybody. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson. <laughs> <laughs>